Isn't that a great reminder of the truth? is empty and the tomb is empty that's right praise god oh praise the name of the lord our god we good now all right very good well we're continuing our study this morning in the book of first peter so take your copy of the scriptures if you would and open to first peter chapter four um, and we're getting closer to the end of the book of First Peter. We're, we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter four this morning, uh, and, and we're excited about what God continues to do. I'm going to turn this around this way because somebody told me they knew that when they saw my Yankees logo on the mug that they were in, good, they were in a good place, all right? So um, there you go. You can look at that. But, but let's really focus on the word of God this morning. That's what we've come to do, right? We've come to be challenged from God's word. We've come to worship our great God. Our worship doesn't stop with the singing of the songs. Our worship continues as we open God's word and ask him to uh, work in our hearts and work in our lives and send us away from here different this morning because we've spent time together in the word and in worshiping our great God. So last week we looked at our ultimate example, and of course the ultimate example for us to follow is none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the Son of God. He is the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ, and I don't mean the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints either. I mean the Church of Jesus Christ, the one true church, his body, his called-out group of people who he saved and he, who he has called to represent him in the world in which we live. So he is our ultimate example, and our goal as the children of God is to become more and more like him. We want to become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. If someone were to ask you, what is the goal of Christianity? What should, what should I be working towards as a Christian? Your answer could be and should be to become more like Jesus Christ, okay? I remember a Sunday school teacher telling me that a Christian is a little Christ one, and that's our goal, to be little Christ ones, to represent Christ wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, and whatever place he has put us. So we want to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's been reminding us uh, and his readers that we may be called to suffer as Christians or little Christ ones. And that shouldn't be surprising, because why? Jesus suffered, right? Jesus suffered greatly while he was here on earth. He suffered in his early ministry. He suffered in the, at the end of his ministry. And ultimately, he suffered on the cross for our sake. He suffered as the just one for unjust ones. And Peter's been talking about how sometimes God calls you and I to suffer unjustly. The world thinks it's absolutely okay to persecute the Christians and persecute those who are followers of Christ. But that's the unjust persecuting the just. 
And I don't say that we are just because of who we are. I say that we are just because of the work that Christ has accomplished in and through us, because of what he has accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Peter wrote that because Jesus suffered for us, that just one, suffering for us at that point as unjust ones, he made it possible for us to be reconciled to the creator, to the one true God. Hallelujah for that. Praise his name for that reconciliation that only he could do. He said, because of that, you and I should strive to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we should face the suffering that may come our way. You know, as, as Americans, we've had it pretty easy, haven't we? We haven't really faced the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have faced. People who live in Russia for years and years and years, and even still today, it's not as recognized quite as much as it was uh, back in the 80s and 90s, but the church in Russia was greatly and severely persecuted. People were martyred for their faith because they wouldn't turn their back on Jesus Christ. It's happening now in other places around the world. A lot of places in the Middle East, churches don't have the freedom to meet. They have to meet in secret. And if they're found out, they may very well face death. We don't know if that's going to come to America. It would be surprising if it doesn't. But the question is, are we ready for it if it does? And Peter was trying to equip his readers for that kind of suffering that might come their way. I'm not asking for it. But if it comes... May by God's grace we be ready to stand and to stand for what is true and stand for what is right. May we walk with our Savior Jesus Christ and may we become more and more like our Savior as we uh, live longer here on this earth. Not because we're part of the earth's system, the world's system, but because we're dedicated to following what God says in the pages of his scripture. Speaking of the pages of scripture... 1 Peter chapter 4 is our text this morning. And in our text this morning, Peter calls straight out for the followers of Jesus to strive to be like Christ. He challenges us to be more Christ-like. And what that means is that we must put away the things of the flesh and follow the example of Jesus Christ. Peter outlines what that looks for us in our text this morning. Would you stand together with me as we read verses 1 through 6 from the screen together? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Read together with me if you would please. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together in his word. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the privilege of being here. We thank you for each one who is here today. We ask, Lord, that as we look into your word, the pages of scripture together, that you would challenge our hearts, challenge our our decision-making process, help us to determine to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, by following the example that he set for us. Help us, Father, to desire to no longer walk in the things of our past, but to walk in the things that you have called us the newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we were reading our text this morning, it's clear to see that as followers of Jesus, we are called to be different. God calls you and I to be different. Now, what does that different look like? Each one of us obviously are different because no two individuals are the same. I mean, you just have to look at your fingerprints. If you were to take your fingerprint and compare it to somebody else's fingerprint, it would be vastly different. Okay, uh, we are all different, but the difference that we're called to, uh, according to Peter here in First Peter chapter four, is not a difference in personality. It's not a difference in the way we look, but it's in a, it's a difference because we are called to become like our Savior Jesus Christ. We've been called to be like Christ, which is so much different from the world in which we live. The world has no desire to follow after the ways of Jesus, right? I mean, we used to live in a country that we could proudly say, hey, we have, we have a Christian heritage, we're a Christian country. Um, we're not anymore. You realize that, right? We are in a very postmodern society and the world in which we live has no desire to follow after the things of God. They've taken God out of the schools. They've taken, they want to take God off our money. They've, taken, they've removed God from just about every place they can remove God from And now they wonder, why isn't God helping us anymore? Why doesn't God bless our country? Well, can I tell you this? We're still a very blessed country. Um, Having lived in another country, um, which was not a bad country, but there's there's, there's such a difference between where we live. We still have the freedom to gather and to worship and to praise the name of our great God and to tell others about who our God is and to, and to be used by God to bring others to a saving understanding of who he is. We still have that freedom. Many countries around the world don't. Many countries that maybe at one time did no longer do. And so we are, we are blessed to live in the country that we are in, but you know what? We are still called to be different we're called to be different, to be, to be image bearers of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we have been called, but there's a, an action that makes us different. And what is that action? Peter uh, talks about it in verses 1 and 2. Uh, maybe you're familiar with or you've heard the phrase, a call to arms. Okay? According to Webster's, a call to arms means a summons to engage in active hostilities. A second definition in the dictionary is a summons or an invitation or an appeal to undertake a particular course of action. Now, there have been many calls to arms over the history of humanity, but for the child of God, the follower of Jesus, we are called to arm ourselves. And the call is perhaps the most important call to arms that there has ever been. And Peter actually calls us to arm ourselves this morning in the text that we are looking at. How do we do that? He's not calling us to necessarily pick up a physical weapon, okay? But he's calling us to equip ourselves, to equip ourselves. Peter wants us uh, to not be afraid to take up the arms of our great God. You'll remember that 
there was, a, there was one time when someone was armed with a sword because Jesus said, hey, take a sword with you wherever you go. That one man, uh, Peter, cut off Melchus's ear in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. That's not the kind of arms that Peter is calling us to right now, even though he was familiar with that kind of arms. But he's calling us to arm ourselves with a biblical mindset, with a Christ-like mindset, that we will go forth and we will live like Christ and we will communicate Christ and we will trust Christ for the things that lie before us. Paul talks about such armor when he calls us to arm ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read that passage of scripture for you. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17, Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Can I tell you this? We are standing in an evil day. I'm not sure that it's the evilest it's going to get, It may very well get worse. In fact, we know that it will. But we are standing in an evil day. He goes on to write, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Peter's not going to spend a lot of time talking about all of this armament that, he's, that Paul has listed. In fact, his focus is really on verse 17, where he talks about salvation, the helmet of salvation. You can't have access to the rest of the armor if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Can you imagine going onto an army base? It's not easy to get onto an army base. Can you go in, imagine going into an army base and saying, hey, I'd like to see the stash of weapons that you have or the cache of weapons that you have? Can you show them to me? And by the way, I want this, this, and that. What are they going to do? They're probably going to throw you in the brig because they're going to think you're crazy or have some evil plot planned. You don't have access to the armament of a soldier unless you're a soldier. You don't have access to the armor of God unless you're a child of God, unless you're born again. And so as a child of God, we take the helmet of salvation and then we take the the sword of the Spirit, which is, Paul says, the Word of God. The Word of God. We must allow the Word of God to shape our minds to shape our thinking process, to make us the children of God that God wants us to be. Peter's talking about the mind of Jesus. He's talked about it several times in this letter that we have been studying. And I've pointed out several times uh, Paul's inspired writing in Philippians chapter 2, where he also talks about the mind of Christ and how you and I are to have the same kind of mind that Jesus had, a mind of humble submission that resulted in his death on the cross as a criminal. What was his charge he was the king of the Jews. But what, what, did they, what did they dislike the most about Jesus? He claimed to be God. He, came, he claimed to be God in the flesh. He was put to death for being God. And the call sometimes for followers of Jesus is to be put to death for being children of God. And Peter says that may happen to us. But here's an interesting thought. Paul calls us in Philippians to have the mind of Christ. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. 
For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? That's a valid question. And then he goes on. But he says, we as followers of Christ, you know what? We have the mind of Christ. It's been given to us. We possess it. I like what gotquestions.org has to say about having the mind of Christ. He writes this, In order to have the mind of Christ, one must first have saving faith in Christ, John 1.12 and 1 John 5.12. After salvation, the believer lives a life under God's influence. You know, so many times we find ourselves under the influence of other things. But as a child of God who has the mind of Christ, we should find ourselves under the influence of God. The Holy Spirit, he goes on to say, indwells and enlightens the believer, infusing him with wisdom, the mind of Christ. The believer bears the responsibility to yield to the Spirit's leading, Ephesians chapter 4, and to follow the Spirit to transform and renew his mind, as it is written in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So here's the encouraging thought for us this morning. We have the mind of Christ. As the child of God, we possess that. And so we need to, we need to cultivate that. We need to foster that. We need to, to allow that to control our lives. Did you see what Peter said is true about the sufferer who has the mind of Christ? This might just uh, kind of rock your world. He says that we who suffer for Christ and have the mind of Christ, he says, you have ceased from sin. Oh, you have ceased from sin. Now that doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we've reached sinless perfection because that will not happen until we get the glory. But what it means is that we have been set free from the bondage of sin. We don't have to live in sin. We don't have to let sin run and ruin our lives. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains it this way. One who has suffered in this way is done with sin. That is, his being identified with Christ demonstrates, as does baptism, by the way, that's the Bible Knowledge Commentary, his break with a sinful life. Because of Christ's death, we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. If we've died in Christ, if we've died to the, we then have died to the things of this world. Paul says, I am, in Galatians chapter 2, I am therefore crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but the, the life which I now live, I live by the faith in the, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is why we are free from the bondage of sin, because Jesus, God in the flesh, died in my place so that I no longer have to be bound to that sin. Paul wants us to understand that we must equip ourselves with that kind of a mindset. He goes on to say that we must escape the old way of life. We must escape it. Actually, an escape has been provided for us. We just need to take advantage of that escape. Think of it this way. You're in a building on the third floor and a fire breaks out. You can't get to the door to access the stairs to safely get out of the fire, but there's a window in the room, and outside the window is a fire escape. You know, the kind that has that steel platform and then a ladder that goes down to the... And when you get to the last set of ladders, it, you get on that ladder and actually drops to the ground and a bang, but it provides you access to freedom, to safety. You say to yourself, <laughs> you think I'm getting on that thing? 
You think I'm going to take advantage of that fire escape that they provided for me to get out of this building? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to choose my own way. I'm going to do it my way. Well, what's going to happen to you if you do it your way? Can I say it this way? You ain't going to make it. The fire is going to consume you. Well, all the while, you had a way of escape right there, provided for you. God has provided for us a way of escape from sin. It is through his son who died on the cross, who paid the penalty of our sins. We know that Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And that's pretty bad news, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You and I can have life. We can escape sin because God has made that provision for us. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, he saves us and he delivers us from the old way. Peter's going to get more specific about this in the following verses, but let's let this truth soak in for a minute. Jesus has done all that is necessary to transform our lives and to clean us up. I've talked to people before who have said, Pastor, I need to do this, I need to stop this, I need to get this sorted out of my life before I can trust Jesus. Nonsense. You can't do anything to clean yourself up. Remember what Isaiah says? All our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags, dirt, nothing worthwhile. All that we do outside of Christ accomplishes nothing. Jesus has already done everything that we need to have done to become clean. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 36? So if the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed. There is no better way of freedom. In fact, there is only one way of freedom, and that's the freedom that that Jesus provides through his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. So you and I, we see that we are called to action, and the action that makes us different is the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Then we, after we see this action has become a reality in our lives, we, we must adopt the attitude that propels us to change in verses three through five. There's an attitude that we must adopt. When we talk about change or introduce the idea of change, it can be scary, right? I know a lot of people don't like change, right, Karen? Karen will be the first to tell you, I don't like change. I want things the way they've always been. But you know what? As a child of God, we should love change. And I'm not talking about physical change in our house or in our service schedule or whatever. I'm talking about the change that God has brought about in our lives. We've mentioned it before. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you all know that verse, but let me read it to you from the NIV. Talk about change, okay? From the NIV, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Woo! Amen. Peter's talking about the old being gone and the new being that which we pursue in our new life in Christ. You and I have a new life. The old life no longer controls us. The no no longer has mastery over us. 
but we are new in Christ. I love the way Peter says it in verse 3. He says, for we have spent enough of our past life doing the will of the Gentiles. Stop doing it. You spent enough time. You wasted enough of your life before you came to know Jesus as your Savior, living like the world. You don't need to do it anymore. You can stop. In fact, that's what he says. Stop living your life in the past. We have a past. Every one of us has a past. And aren't you glad that God saved you from that past? We could go around the room this morning and people could tell us what their past life was like. We're not going to do that. At least not this morning. But we have a past. Some, some pasts are more checkered than others. Some pasts are more colored than others. Some pasts are not, from a world's point of view, too bad. But all of our paths sentence us to separation from God in a place called hell. Those of us that are here this morning know, that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have a story that tells how God saved us. The common denominator is we believed in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary that set us free from sin and death. And so Paul says, stop living like you are in the past. Here's that list that I was saying was going to come. Peter says, we all, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but these are some of the things that God has delivered people from. And this is not a complete list by any stretch of the means, okay? This is just the, the list that Paul, or that Peter used. He talked about lewdness. This, world has the, this word has the idea of ex- excessiveness, It's also connected to obscene and indecency, even in a sexual context. Make no mistake about it. There is no good about being lewd, okay? Lewdness is a thing that should not be associated with a child of God. It's not even associated with a decent moral person, okay? He says, he talks about lusts. He said that we walked in lewdness and lusts. Uh, to lust is to have an intense or an abnormal desire for something, usually something bad, doing what it takes to satisfy a carnal appetite. I want, therefore I must have, therefore I must do whatever it takes to get it. That's what lust is. And when we allow lust to control our lives, we begin to do things that are outside the will of God. We begin to do things, or we continue if you're unsaved, to do things that are, are not right, the things that drive you to accomplish. You think like maybe a worst case scenario is a person who becomes addicted to drugs and, and in order to, to feed that habit, they begin to steal and, and then they still can't get enough when they steal, so they kill. And, and it, just, it just snowballs one thing after another. It's excessive and the lust drives you in your life to have what you think you need to have. There's only one way to fulfill the desires of life, and that's by knowing Christ as your Savior. Peter says, we used to walk in the lusts of this life. Drunkenness is another one. Again, drunkenness has the idea of excess, this time in regard to wine or alcohol in general. It is allowing your spirit or your nature to be controlled by intoxicating drink. And you know what? The world makes that out to be something that's just plain old okay. In fact, if you're not doing it, you're missing out. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan wants you to think that it's okay to have an excess of alcohol in your life. And we've excused it. 
Now, by calling it a disease, I'm sorry, it's not a disease. It's a sin. If you want to be delivered from it, you need to trust Christ as your Savior. It's the only way. There's lots of programs that might help you make progress for a while, but to be completely delivered is to trust Christ as your Savior. Drunkenness is a sin that characterizes our world today. Revelries. This word is used specifically to describe riotous conduct that is brought about by excessive eating and drinking. Strong's definition of this word ends with it with this. It always presupposes a festive company and drunken revelers. Now, I don't know, I might be misrepresenting something here, but um, very shortly after we moved here to Preble, we were warned about an annual event that happens in Cortland or Ithaca. Uh, it doesn't happen in Cortland or Ithaca anymore. It's now grown to uh, a bigger venues. It's called Cortica Jug. Pastor, don't go to Cortland when that's going on. That's just bad. Everything about it is bad. I mean, it's supposed to be a football game, but it's not really about football anymore, right? It's about, if I understand it correctly, it's about revelries. Not rivalries, but revelries. We have a friend who works at uh, Wegmans in Ithaca, and, and she said, uh, I, you know, you're coming to pick stuff up? Don't come on that weekend. If it's here in Ithaca, don't come. It's just a mess. There's all kinds of nonsense going on. The stories that you hear that come out of that fit this kind of a description, and it shouldn't be part of the child of God's life. I mean, watch the football game. Absolutely, go ahead and enjoy it. But don't participate in all the other stuff that is associated with it. He goes on to talk about drinking parties. Literally, this is a drinking match or a drinking contest, according to the the Greek word there. It's the idea of who can drink more. All going back to the idea of drinking to excess or overindulging. There's games, I understand, never been to one, but there's games that you play to see who can hold their liquor or hold their alcohol the best. That's just a showcase for Satan. And, Paul, and Peter says, don't let that go on in your life. He ends the list with this, abominable idolatries. The two-word description that should, be part, should not be part of the follower of Jesus' life stands out with the word Abominable. I'm not sure what you think of when you think of that word. Sometimes I think we've watered it down because of the abominable snowman. He's not some cute, cuddly snowman. Okay? The word abominable means he's out to destroy. He's out to ruin. He's out to wreck. He participates in that which is forbidden. That's what the Greek word tells us. Um, it's forbidden, it's unlawful, he, he enjoys doing those kinds of things. The next word is the word for worship. So forbidden worship, forbidden worship, that's what abominable idolatries is. Peter's talking about worship that is an abomination before the Lord. Remember, Jesus put together, two, put to death, or God put to death two priests in the Old Testament for their abominable worship. They offered strange fire to God and God struck them dead. God doesn't want us worshiping false gods or in a way that does not honor him. For Peter's readers, this could have meant worshiping pagan deities like any of the Greek gods, whether that be Zeus, the god of the skies, Ares, the god of war, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, or Diocenes, the god of wine. 
There's any number of Rome gods or Greek gods or any other kind of gods that Peter could have been talking about here. It could also include some, other, some kinds of self-worship or the worship of work or sports or anything that comes between you and the one true God. As the worshipers of the one true God, we want to worship the way God would have us to worship. We want to worship him, as he said to the woman on the well, in spirit and in truth. You see, that's the key. The truth of God. We can't worship God if we don't know him. How do we know him? We know him through the pages of scripture. This kind of lifestyle that he talks about, these six vices that he mentions, is normal lifestyles for the unbeliever. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV, talk to someone that lives on the campus of a non-Christian university. Uh, when When you're saved out of that, Peter says, don't go back to it. You don't need to go back to it. Remember the call to holiness that God has given us? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. We're going to spend more time about, talking about that tonight. But he says this, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch that which is unclean. Can I read the words of a song, or at least part of the words of a song for you this morning? The song is called Walking Free. It's an amazing song. Micah Tyler writes this, The verdict was guilty. Case closed. The end. No chance for me to ever leave this prison of my sin. Now I know I might sound crazy, but one day a key unlocked the cell. I heard a small voice say, your debt has been paid by somebody else. And now I'm walking, walking, walking free. No more darkness. Guilt has lost its grip on me. When mercy called my name, those chains fell at my feet, and now I'm walking, walking free. He goes on to say, now, so now I'm walking, walking free. No more darkness, no more guilt. Gr- guilt has lost its grip on me when mercy called my name. What is it that saves the child of God? The mercy of God, the grace of God. Now, I, I ain't no, nothing perfect. I still stumble every single day. I still get knocked down. But the difference now is that's not where I stay because I've got a Savior who knows everywhere I've been, and he's telling me that I never have to go back there again. We have the privilege to walk free because of what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. So Peter, when he says, stop living in the past, he's equipped us with all that we have to never, ever go back to the past and live that way any longer. Instead, he says, start living like there's been a change. Because you are in Christ, there has been a change. There's been an amazing change. You know the change. Your life is different now. You live differently. The cool thing is that others will see that difference in you as well. They'll see the change in your life, the the change that lasts longer than just a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even a couple of years. It's a lifetime change. In fact, it's an eternal change that God has made in our lives. The longer that change is evident in our life, the greater impact you may have on others. But Peter issues a warning here. He says, first of all, this change, it's going to be a noticeable change. 
He words it this way. In regard to these, the changes, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Have your, has your group of friends changed a little bit since you trusted Christ as your Savior? And when you went back to hang out with those same friends and you didn't do the same things that they're doing, the flood of dissipation as he calls it, they're like, what in the world is wrong with you? What happened to you? Why are you so different? You're crazy. Why do you live this way? You're missing out on all the fun. Now, they may initially congratulate you for the new leaf that you've turned over in their minds. That's the way they see it. But as they see this to be a new lifestyle, not just a change for a short period of time, they begin to question, why are you so different? Man, you don't even know how to have fun anymore. Oh, yes, I do. It's just different because I've been called to be different. And Peter wants us to understand that oftentimes these questions become now derogatory and degrading comments. It moves from a noticeable change to a nasty reaction. Peter says, they start speaking evil of you. This word speak evil, it means to rail against you, to slander you, to set out to ruin your reputation. They threaten to take away their friendship from you. Their goal becomes to drag you back down into the pit that God has pulled you up out of. And this reaction is spurred on by none other than the wicked one himself. He wants you to become discouraged, depressed, and to forsake the one who has saved you and has given you new life. And Peter encourages us to live in light of truth, to live based on the word of God. Don't let them drag you back down. Don't let them turn you back around to where God has brought you out of. You don't need to. There's no reason for you to go back there. God has delivered you from that kind of a lifestyle. So Peter says, settle on reality. Understand this. Settle into the reality. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now this is not meant to be vindictive in any way. Rather, it's meant to be a simple statement of fact when we, we talked about this earlier, we've been freed from sin and its devastation. But those apart from Jesus, still under the curse, they don't understand that. And their sure fate is to stand before the judge like we will stand before the judge. The difference is where we will stand. We're all going to stand before the judge. You understand that, right? But aren't you glad that we're standing at a different judgment? As believers, we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And the only people standing at that judgment seat are those who know Jesus as their Savior. And when, when accusation is leveled against us, Jesus will come to our aid and he will say, I paid for that sin. I satisfied the debt of that sin. Amen. We will be judged on why we did what we did. Really, the motive for, for our life. And, and we, will, we will gain rewards at that judgment seat. The things that we did for the cause of Christ and in Christ's name and for his honor and for his glory, those will bear crowns. The things that we did out of selfish ambition and our own desires will, will, will get burned up. But at the end, the Lord will welcome us into his presence for all of eternity. Yes, there might be sadness there for a moment, but can you imagine that Jesus then comes and wipes away the tears from your eyes? And he says, enter into my rest. 
No more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. Jesus loves on us for a little bit and says, come on home. The other judgment, totally different. Everyone standing at the great white throne judgment has no hope. Their their fate has been sealed by their own choosing. By choosing to reject God and not accept the gift of everlasting life, their sentence will be the same. God will look at them and say, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. If you think you've had bad days in your life up until this point, there's nothing like that day. Worst day for anybody is to hear those words. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Saddest and most devastating words anyone will ever hear. There's no reversing the impact of that sentence. You see, grace and mercy have been extended to every human being while they lived on earth. And those that refuse the free gift of God while they're here in this world, in this lifetime, they will not have a chance to repent when they stand at that judgment seat. So what does that mean for you and I? It means for you and I that we must be communicating the good news to others, to those that God brings across our path. We want them to hear the good news, we want them to know the good news, and we want them to accept the good news that is available through Jesus Christ. We must pray for and we must communicate Jesus to others because if they're standing at the great white throne, my friend, it's too late for them. There is great hope for the child of God. Peter says, settle into that hope, settle into that truth, know the reality that it doesn't matter what people say about you here and now on this earth, it doesn't matter that they try to get you to jump back into that old lifestyle, it doesn't matter that they are calling you, treating you poorly, unjustly, ruining your life by the things they say about you, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you know Jesus today as your personal Savior. Leave the rest to the one who judges rightly and fairly and makes no mistakes. But make sure that you've done all that you can to communicate this truth to others. And Peter ends our our section this morning with the authority on which the changes are made. He says, For this reason... The gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, I'll admit to you that that sounds a bit confusing. How do we wrap our minds around what Peter is saying here? Uh, judge, the gospel is preached to those who are dead? What does that mean? Well, we see the deliverance of the gospel here. Peter is saying that those who are dead, those who have passed away, those who have gone on uh, they're no longer alive on this earth. The gospel was preached to some of them and they trusted Christ as their savior. They believed the gospel. They they accepted the good news of Jesus Christ. They accepted the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary as the only and all sufficient means by which to be justified. And because they've accepted that good news, that work of Christ, they have been declared right before God. And he says to them, there is no reason to doubt that. The gospel was preached also to those that are dead. He's not talking about those who are spiritually dead. Because 
once you're spiritually dead, he's already established the fact that you can't hear the gospel. It doesn't do you any good. There's no second chances once you've passed on from this life. So you must deal with it now, in the here and now. So when Peter says the gospel is preached to those who are dead, he's talking about those who are physically dead, but have trusted Christ as their Savior. We see here also the decision of men. Some of these saints that had believed the gospel as preached concerning Jesus' death and resurrection, who, who they lived this unashamedly for the cause of Christ, and by the judgment of men they were put to death. They were martyred. Paul had a hand in some of that when he, before he came to know Jesus as his Savior. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, uh, in the book of Acts we read that he was consenting to Stephen's death. He was casting his vote to put young Stephen to death. Stephen was the first martyr of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul had an active role. Saul played an active role in that. It was the decision of men to put him to death. And countless other Christians have faced that same kind of decision. But praise God that they trusted Jesus Christ. The decision of men to judge them unjustly didn't matter. Even though they died on earth, the judge, the true judge, the righteous judge, passed a fair and equitable sentence on them. And that sentence was life everlasting in the presence of God in heaven for all of eternity. And you know what, my friends? That's the same sentence for you and I. Life everlasting in the presence of God for all of eternity for those who have put their faith and trust in the one true God. doesn't matter what the decision of men is. It matters what the decision of God is and how you've responded to that gift he's offered to us. And then he closes out in a very encouraging way. He closes out with the delight of new life. He says, but they live according to God in the spirit. This is certain joy for the child of God. Those who are living in the living stone know what joy is to live in Jesus Christ. The joy we know on this earth is very pale compared to the joy we know when we see Jesus face to face and spend eternity with him. But even in the here and now when things might not look so good, there is joy for the child of God. There is joy for you and I. And we can live in that joy. And then when we die in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know what joy is really like. You know my, one of my favorite verses, 1 John 3, 2, we shall become like him because we will see him as he is. I'm, I'm sure that we can't wrap our minds fully around that idea yet. We will become like him when we see him as he is. Oh, heaven is such a blessing. And knowing that that's where we're going to spend all of eternity, nothing can compare to that joy. Remember what Peter said in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice, get this, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is done Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a great work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Oh man, what a blessing, what a tremendous joy that is ours. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah spoke about it when he said in chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Man, I get Jesus' righteousness in my place. Can you imagine that? My righteousness exchanged for the righteousness of God. His robes for mine. Don't deserve it, but he's given it to me anyway. The completion of our joy will be when we reach glory. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sadness. In fact, our salvation will be complete. We'll become like Jesus. Can we all say hallelujah? Thank you, Jesus. Peter calls us to be different. He calls us to be who we are in Christ. Even though we may suffer unjustly, we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of Jesus. You see, Peter completes this section with an expression of hope and joy. Let me encourage you with the words of John MacArthur. He says this, No pressure from enemies of the gospel, no unjust persecution by an ungodly world can steal believers' victory. Rather, all their suffering for righteousness' sake has a perfecting power, increases your spiritual strength, humbles you, drives you to prayer, enriches your reward, and in the event the enemies of Christ take your life, they have reached their ultimate goal, and God's eternal purpose is forever with him ceased from sin. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the words from the pen of the Apostle Peter. We know in reality they're words from you because you inspired Peter to write these words. Father, he's challenged us, he's called us to be different because you've called us to be different. You've called us to become like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we strive for that in this world. We know we'll never reach it on these shores, but when you call us home, whether that be through death or the rapture, Lord, (coughs) we know that we'll become like Jesus at that point in time because we'll see him as he is. Thank you, Father, for the promise of your word. We do want to ask for your help, Lord, as we look at our lives now and, and realize what you have saved us out of. First of all, we want to thank you for that. And secondly, Lord, we want to ask you that you'll help us not to have a desire to go back there, not to want to participate in that same kind of lifestyle because we spent enough time there. We don't need to spend any more time there because you set us free from it. Thank you, Father, for your love and your care, your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Father, for those opportunities that you'll give us this week to communicate Christ to others. May we take advantage of them to the best of our abilities, relying on the Holy Spirit to help us serve you well in those regards. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Mark's going to come and lead us in our closing song this morning.